Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, 
send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello, everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader one. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters and the fourth edition of The Long Shadow. Case number one, Suzanne Capper, a brutal and tragic end to a short life. Suzanne Jane Capper was born in 1976 in Manchester, England. She was described as, quote, a gentle and easily influenced girl. She was babysat by Jean Powell from the age of 10. In 1990, Suzanne became a ward of the state after her mother, Elizabeth Capper, and her stepfather separated. Suzanne and her older sister, Michelle, were eventually placed with their stepfather. It was about this time that Suzanne became truant. Her checkered attendance was noted by school officials as being erratic. She spent most of what should have been time in school with Jean Powell. Powell sold drugs and had been involved with the sale and distribution of stolen vehicles. Michelle had lived with her briefly because she didn't like her, quote, evil new friends. She was especially put off by Bernadette McNeely. Suzanne continued to spend time there on a regular basis, despite Jean and Bernadette's tendency to bully her. Explaining why Suzanne kept returning to Powell's home, Michelle said, It was not that she was scared of them, it's just that she would do anything for them. She pampered their every whim. Powell was separated from her husband, Glenn, though they remained friends, and he visited her home regularly. McNeely's boyfriend was 16-year-old Anthony Dudson, who also had sex with Powell. Powell had regular sex with Jeffrey Lee, who purchased amphetamines from her. Another regular visitor to Powell's house was Jean's younger brother, Clifford Pook. Suzanne was kidnapped. Numerous motives were cited. Jean Powell said that Suzanne tried to persuade her to have sex with a man for financial compensation. 
McNeely and Dudson caught crabs and believed that they contracted them from a bed in which Suzanne slept. McNeely also alleged that Suzanne stole a coat from her. November 1992. Dudson shaved his pubic hair to get rid of the crabs. McNeely told him she thought she caught them from Suzanne. Dudson didn't concur. He said later, I told Jean I thought I got them from Bernie McNeely. December 7th. Suzanne was lured to Jean's home. Glenn Powell and Dudson were waiting there. As soon as Suzanne walked through the door, she was grabbed and held down. Glenn shaved her head and eyebrows. He forced her to sweep up the hair and put it in the garbage. After she was finished with that task, he placed a plastic bag over her head and walked around her, hitting her on the head all the while. Jean and Bernadette started kicking her. At one point, they had her on the floor, withering from the attack. At one point, the women took turns beating Suzanne with a heavy wooden object of some kind. They graduated to whipping her with a belt. Suzanne was taken from there to the bathroom and forced to shave off her pubic hair as, quote, ritual humiliation in revenge for having caused, as they claimed, Dudson and McNeely themselves to be shaved. Jean Powell followed up by locking Suzanne in a cupboard and leaving her there overnight. In the morning, Suzanne was released from the cupboard. She was brought upstairs, where she was locked in another cupboard. December 8th, Suzanne, still a captive, was taken to Bernadette McNeely's house because hers and Jean's children were disturbed by the sound of Suzanne's crying. She was tied spread-eagle to an upturned bed with a power cable in a back room downstairs. Over the subsequent five days, Suzanne was subjected to numerous horrific tortures. She was beaten frequently. She was injected with amphetamines. They burned her with cigarettes. They placed headphones on her head and blasted the song Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play by 150 volts at top volume on repeat. Every time McNeely spearheaded another session of torture, she would begin by saying, Chucky's coming to play. At some point during that period, Lee and Pook paid a visit to the house. They saw Suzanne blindfolded and gagged while tied to the bed. By this point, she had been lying in her own urine and feces for days. She was placed in a bath that contained concentrated disinfectant. She was scrubbed with a brush that was so coarse it rubbed her raw. Pook participated in her torture in his own right, yanking two of her teeth out with pliers. He kept the teeth as souvenirs, which were found at his house and included as evidence in his conviction. To quote Dudson, I stood at the doorway with Jeannie Powell and Bernie McNeely. Cliff Pook took her gag off. He told her to open her mouth. He said, right, I'm going to rip your teeth out. He started hitting her teeth with the pliers. He got the pliers on and started pulling it out but it just snapped and chipped. Then he hit them a few more times. He put the pliers on again and really, 
really pulled. He pulled Suzanne's head forward until there was a snap, and he had the tooth in the pliers. He did the same again, and he was laughing. Eighteen-year-old David Hill was asked to, quote, sit in at the house. While he was there, he heard Dudson shouting in the back room. When he investigated, Lee showed him Suzanne. It was obvious to Hill that she had been tortured, but he did not free her. Explaining this, he said, She asked me if I could help, but I told her I couldn't. I asked her who she was. She said her name was Suzanne. She asked me if I could untie her. I said I couldn't do anything. Hill said he was too afraid of Lee to intervene. He said, I thought they would batter me. If I'd said anything, they'd all have got me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything. Lee and Dudson even helped Suzanne's sister's fiancé, Paul Barlow, fix his car, while knowing Suzanne was bound and tortured in the house. Barlow said, They could have told me there and then. The door would have been kicked down, and I would have got Suzanne out. I did not think they were capable of such savagery. Now all I want is ten minutes with them in a back room. When the attackers heard that Suzanne was about to be reported as a missing person, they agreed that she had to be removed from the house. December 14th. Suzanne was forced into the trunk of a stolen car and driven to a narrow lane 15 miles away. Bernadette McNeely giggled as they commuted. According to Jean, Suzanne was pushed down an embankment into a patch of brambles, where McNeely poured gasoline on her. She, Glynn, and Dudson all struggled to set her on fire. When Suzanne was alight, McNeely sang the chorus from the disco song Disco Inferno by the Tramps, the familiar chorus going, Burn, Baby, Burn. Once they were sure she was dead, they left, stopping for beverages on the way home. Lee and Pook were in the house when they arrived. Once her assailants left, Suzanne rose to her feet and walked up to Comstall Road. Her body was burned extensively. She was discovered at 6.10 a.m. by a man named Barry Sutcliffe and two of his work colleagues. They took her to a house nearby and asked the occupants to summon first responders. Michael Coop described her condition at that time. Both her hands appeared like ash. Her legs were just like raw meat, and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck by how polite the victim was. She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance. Margaret Coop said, I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved, and there were recent, not new, cuts to her head. Her face was almost featureless. Her hands were red, raw, and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs. Suzanne drank six glasses of water, though it was a struggle to hold the glass because of the burns on her hands. She was taken to hospital. Before falling into a coma, 
she named her attackers. Suzanne's burns were so severe and extensive that her mother and stepfather were unable to recognize her. She was positively identified by a fingerprint on her thumb, which was partially burned off. She lost the rest of her prints to burns. December 18th, Suzanne Capper died. She did not wake from her coma. Police were dispatched to Jean Powell's house and arrested everyone on the premises, save for the children. Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely laughed and joked with each other as they were detained. All suspects denied culpability, but Dudson was pressed by his father to tell the truth, and he opened up. The six accused were remanded into custody and charged with kidnapping and attempted murder. After Suzanne died, they were charged with her murder. The trial began on November 16, 1993. It lasted for 22 days. All suspects denied they were responsible for the murder. In their testimonies, they all downplayed their roles. November 24th, Clifford Pook was cleared of murder. December 16th, the jury deliberated for nine hours and 50 minutes. Mr. Justice Potts declared, Each of you has been convicted on clear evidence of murder, which was as appalling a murder as it is possible to imagine. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Case number two, a girl with a gastrointestinal issue suffers unspeakable tortures that would make you sick. Muncie, Indiana resident, 30-year-old Charlene Tabb, told police during an interrogation in summer 2013 that she knew nothing about the scars, burns, and bruises that were found on the body of her five-year-old cousin, Marie Pierre. Tab was charged with murder for causing Pierre's death. Prosecutors alleged that Marie suffered through months of abuse and torture before she was finally found dead on Tab's dining room floor on June 22, 2013. Tab's siblings, who were ages 16, 14, and 11 when Marie died, testified during the trial that Charlene Tebb regularly punished Marie with beatings and other abuse because she was infuriated by Marie's frequent spells with nausea, a chronic condition. Tab's siblings confessed to participating in the abuse. At Tab's behest, they would torture Marie with tools such as a hammer, screwdriver, and pliers. Her brother said his younger sister pierced one of Marie's feet with a screwdriver the week she died. Charlene Tab was also charged with neglect and battery due to her abuse of her siblings. At first, she denied that they participated in the abuse, but eventually admitted that they shared in the responsibility. At one point, she said to police, 
I have to find out what happened to Marie. My mom would never send all these kids with me if she didn't trust me. The investigators told her that it appeared pliers were used to twist and pinch Marie's nipples. Tab said, Hmm, I have no idea. I'm kind of shocked. She said she left her 16-year-old sister in charge of the household while she was at work. When she was told that Marie's body presented with signs of torture, Charlene said, Nobody said anything. She seemed happy. They asked her when was the last time she hugged Marie. Tab was silent at first, then said, They've been doing great. Detective Jimmy Gibson said, Doesn't sound like it. You've got a little girl with all these wounds, and now she's dead. After a while, Tab asked, Is Marie okay? Detective Gibson said, She's passed on. Tab started crying. She said, She's here. She has to be okay. She was just fine before I left for work. Tab looked at a photograph of Marie's hands. They were scarred. Tab, that's not Marie. Gibson, I think she's been living in hell for a while. Gibson told her he found out from her younger sister that Charlene was upset about Marie's indigestion problem, which had her vomiting up to three times a day. Tab, it was common to all of us. We didn't pay attention to that. Gibson asked her why she didn't seek medical attention for Marie's digestive condition. Tab said Marie vomited, quote, once every three months. Tab's younger sister alleged that Charlene beat Marie with a belt and forced her to sleep on the dining room floor. Gibson told Charlene she was under arrest for neglect of a dependent. He said, shame on you for not taking care of her. When Tab's 15-year-old brother took the stand, he said Marie told him she was, quote, very cold shortly before she died. She also said, I just feel weak. The boy admitted to using a hammer to strike Marie, which left a gaping, baseball-sized wound on her buttocks. This was done the week she died. He said two days before she died, his younger sister pierced her foot with a screwdriver and smashed her toes with a hammer. Hitting Marie's feet with the hammer was part of a quote-unquote game. The game was invented by Charlene. The boy was asked, Why did you continue to harm her in horrendous ways? The boy said, I don't know. I was in way over my head. Sir, I was just doing what I was told. When Charlene's husband, Marcus Tab, was notified by her siblings that Marie stopped breathing, he didn't react right away. He drove to the factory where Charlene was employed, and then they drove home. Nobody called 911 until the adults arrived at the house and had a look at Marie's corpse. Marcus was also charged with child abuse-related offenses. Case number three. Don't understand sexual sadism? Paul Rung can teach you what it's all about. Not much is known about Paul Rung's childhood other than he was born on January 28, 1970 in Oak Forest, Illinois. Thoughts and fantasies informed by sexual sadism emerged when he was a small child. 
the pathology intensified and occurred with greater regularity after his mother died when he was 17 years old. That year, he abducted, raped, and beat up a 14-year-old girl in Oak Forest. He later turned himself into police. He was sentenced to a term of 14 years. He was paroled in May 1994. After his release from prison, he married a woman named Charlene. He worked as a shoe salesman and then as a truck driver. He moved to three other cities. He was taken back into custody in May 1997 because of a parole violation. The next victim was an acquaintance of Rung's wife. Her name was Stacy Frobel, and she was 25 years old. On January 3rd or 4th, 1995, she went to visit Charlene in the couple's house and was never seen alive again. A German shepherd named Friendly brought a severed human leg to its owner's home, which had been found in a field nearby. Friendly found the matching leg five days later. DNA testing confirmed that the legs had belonged to Stacy Froebel. The way the murder went down was Rung struck Froebel with a dumbbell, killing her instantly. He placed her corpse in the bathtub and dismembered it with a saw. He scattered her severed parts around northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin. He called in sick to his employer, Foot Locker, and then resigned. His next victim was Dorota Dezubach. Rung raped and strangled her in January 1997 in Chicago's northwest side. He met her in response to an ad about a house that was for sale. Firefighters found her remains while extinguishing the flames in her house. February 3, 1997. Yolanda Gutierrez and Jessica Muniz lived in an apartment in Chicago's northwest side and had advertised that they had sporting equipment for sale. Gutierrez was 45 years old and Muniz was 10. Rung raped and tortured them on a bed for hours. He finished them off by slashing their throats. He set their home on fire before leaving. March 1997, Paul Rung approached 42-year-old Casimira Parok about buying her condominium unit. He raped and strangled her. He set her home on fire, after which her charred body was found by firefighters. While Rung was in prison, DNA evidence linked him to the Gutierrez Muniz murders. He confessed to committing the other five killings. He also admitted to killing a prostitute and dismembering her body and discarding the remains. January 2006. Rung was convicted and sentenced to death. The sentence was commuted when the death penalty was abolished in Illinois in 2011. He remains in prison. Case number four, shocking, not surprising. Another woman raped and tortured in India. In New Delhi, India, a 20-year-old woman was abducted and gang-raped by a group of men as a so-called revenge attack. Her head was shaved, her face was blackened, and a garland of shoes was placed around her neck. She was punched and slapped as they paraded her throughout the streets. 
video footage of the incident went viral, leading to widespread outrage. In the video, a gaggle of women can be seen forcing the woman to walk and striking her as she did. Their actions were celebrated by a crowd of onlookers who provided moral support to the assailants. The family of the victim has said that the attackers were connected to the family of a teenage boy who committed suicide in November 2021. They said the boy was stalking and pursuing the victim obsessively for a long time, but she consistently rejected him, whereupon he took his life. The victim is married and has a three-year-old son. Her sister said he fell in love with her. He used to keep calling and asking her to leave her husband to be with him. She would always refuse. After the boy's death, his family threatened the woman so many times she changed a dress. Police are closely guarding the safety of the victim's family. New Delhi police are investigating the case and expect to arrest others soon. Delhi's chief minister, Arvind Kajirwal, called the attack shameful and called for swift action against the guilty parties. Sexual violence against women has seen a recent uptick in India. Legal penalties for rape have been adjusted to increase in severity as a means to discourage sexual assault in the country, but it has had little effect. In fact, in 2019, over 32,000 rapes were reported. In other words, rapes of Indian women occur at an approximated rate of about four an hour. Considering that rapes are typically underreported, the rate could be much higher. Case number five. They have serial killers in South Africa, too. Maupa Cedric Makey, also known as the Wemmer Pan Killer, was born in South Africa in 1965. He moved to Johannesburg as an adolescent, where he eventually became self-employed as a plumber. He married and had four children in Limpopo. He had a girlfriend in Johannesburg. When he was 33 years old, he was living in La Rochelle, Johannesburg, when he became a criminal, seemingly without a triggering event. Throughout 1996 and 1997, Maki committed a minimum of 27 murders. He was dubbed the Wemmer Pan Killer because he was in the district of Wemmer Pan in Johannesburg that he killed most of his victims. His killing spree began in April 1996. In the beginning, law enforcement assumed that the murders were committed by two separate serial killers. Two investigations were launched, one to find the so-called Wemmer Killer and another to find a culprit responsible for what was dubbed the Hammer Murders. December 28, 1996. Antonio Alfonso was working in the Hill Gardens Cafe in High Street, Rosettenville. Maki entered the cafe and, without provocation, assaulted Alfonso with a hammer. He stole money from the cash register and left. Alfonso survived. January 6, 1997. Maki entered a store owned by Magen Kanji. He struck him with a shifting spanner until he rendered Kanji unconscious. He stole five pairs of pants. January 8th, Maki bludgeoned Kenny Chan with a hammer at his place of business and stole money from the cash register. Maga's attacks escalated in barbarity. He beat 
Kantalal Lutchman with a hammer and stole his wallet in a tailor's shop. He did the same to Abdul Babulia in Newtown. The first person to be murdered by Maka was Don Suklau Patel, who was beaten with a hammer and died in hospital. The Wedmerpan murders involved several victims, and the murders were committed according to a pattern. The victim would be walking alone when Make would ambush them and bludgeon them to death with large rocks. January 12, 1998. Police Superintendent Piet Bailaveld made a connection between the Wemmerpan and hammer killings. Cedric Make had been a suspect, and he brought Bailaveld to a pawn shop in La Rochelle, where he sold a bicycle that had belonged to Gerhard Lavu, one of the Wemmerpan victims. The alias he used on the receipt was Patrick Mowena, which he had also used to check a shirt in at one of the tailors before Make killed him. Cedric Make was charged with 36 counts of murder, 28 attempted murders, 15 counts of rape, 46 counts of aggravated robbery, and myriad charges germane to the unlawful possession of firearms and ammunition. In court, he pled not guilty to the charges. A month later, he confessed to the Hammer murders. September 6, 2000. Cedric Maque was convicted of 27 murders, 26 attempted murders, 14 rapes, 41 aggravated robberies, and several lesser charges. He was found guilty of 114 of the 134 charges and was sentenced to 27 life sentences, one for each murder. He was also given 1,159 years and three months in prison. All told, he was sentenced to 1,340 years in prison. Case number six, four-year-old Tegan Skiba's four years of hell. July 16, 2010, Smithfield, North Carolina. Doctors and nurses tried desperately to save the life of four-year-old Tegan Skiba. Deputy Matt De Silva was an arresting officer on the case. In court, he recalled how he reacted to the trauma inflicted on Tegan. It immediately brought tears to my eyes. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen done to a human being, especially a child. I've never seen anything like that in the years that I've been doing this as a law enforcement officer, and I've seen a lot, but not like that. De Silva broke down crying on the stand. The judge called for a 25-minute recess to allow De Silva to regain his composure. Another officer wept on the stand as they described what they encountered when they investigated the case. It was a marked contrast to the disposition of the perpetrator, Jonathan Douglas Richardson. He smiled intermittently. Doctors who treated Tegan testified. They said she was bleeding in her skull due to the impact of blunt force injuries. The physical abuse also manifested as bite marks, whip marks, lesions, scabs, and scars, all of which were found throughout Tegan's entire body. There were also indicators of sexual abuse. Richardson told doctors she became critically ill at the time he took her to a local hospital in Johnston County. 
Jagan's injuries were so severe, she required specialized care in a pediatric facility. So she was transferred to UNC Hospital's North Carolina Children's Hospital in Chapel Hill. She died three days later. When De Silva returned to the stand to finish his testimony, he described Richardson's behavior at the time of his arrest as mocking. Richardson was quoted as saying to De Silva while he was being detained, What are y'all going to do? Tie me down and cut me up? To quote De Silva, I just looked at him. He had a slight little grin on his face. Jonathan Richardson was the boyfriend of Tegan's mother. He tortured Megan emotionally, physically, and sexually in a shed behind his grandparents' home in Smithfield. Tegan's mother was away training for the Army Reserves. Richardson was up on charges of first-degree murder, felony child abuse, kidnapping, and sexual offense with a child. Death was proposed as part of his sentencing. He denied that he sexually abused the girl and said he didn't intend to kill her. He blamed his conduct on inexperience with parenting. His attorneys blamed his mental health issues, his own childhood abuse experiences, and the consent her mother allegedly gave to use corporal punishment on Tegan. Richardson was sentenced to death. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters and this fourth edition of The Long Shadow. Bye for now.